Welcome to the Echo Church Podcast. Echo is a group of people in Cincinnati, Ohio, who love Jesus, love hanging out, and are navigating the ups and downs of our faith together. We're glad you're here. We had gone through the life of Jesus. We spent some time in the New Testament letters looking at the way Jesus' disciples then discipled other people. And then we've had a little time over our Christmas season to look at the birth of Jesus again. And now we're going to head into a new series next week. We're going to begin Exodus and look at the way this pivotal moment, this story of God's people and how important it was and how it comes back and shapes the Bible, shapes the people and who they are. So to give us a bit of history um, before we begin that series, I'm thankful that Steve, one of our elders, also my husband, is going to preach for us today. So I'm very thankful to have him share, and we're going to look into Egypt. Thank you, Kelly, for that wonderful introduction. I am so glad to be here. Okay. Uh, my daughter, Kaylin, who is like 13 months, like she's counting down to her adulthood, which is crazy. So we're, now we're just going to scatter all these stories and anecdotes about her because as we, you know, push on through it, they're just not, they're, they're just not going to be as cute or whatever. But this picture was one I took just minutes of her educate minutes before her educational journey. So we were in her kindergarten classroom. There was a line to check in and she had this like excitement, but fear, and I just always like, she's just faking it through the smile, it's good type of stuff, but had a great experience as a young woman who was studying, uh, and she attended Fairview German Language School, and that is a public school here in Cincinnati, it's located um, over toward the Clifton proper area, there's a Fairview area down by the university, so there's these neighborhoods, but when they moved it, they wanted to link on to that Fairview, because that school was started specifically to uh, reach out to the young people in the uh, German community. And there are, I think you probably are familiar with it if you've seen the carousing that happens at Oktoberfest every year. But Cincinnati is a very German city. Now, uh, we were not German. We did not say, hey, we want Kalen to be in there to try to hold on to our heritage. It was just the best school, public school nearby we could get her into. And actually, to get her into it, I had to camp out for days. It was this old school, so you parents who are in CPS now running through everything, it used to be worse. Like, it was like, seriously, camping, and then, you know, when you get a bunch of adults who have no responsibilities in camping, like the drunkenness in the school parking lot, it was just the craziest time. But we got her into this school, and she took to it very well, and by the time she had actually finished at Fairview, bragging on the daughter here, is that she won the German award for being, like, the, the most dedicated German student. So, uh, Kaylin loves Germany to the extent that when we went over to Poland with the Rota a few years ago, we did a train ride over to Berlin just to be able to experience the culture. And I don't know exactly when it was during that process with her because I felt like there was this pending doom, this elephant in the room where I was like, at some point, we're going to have to explain to this kid that Germany isn't all puppy dogs and rainbows, right? There, there were the Nazis. There were... There was this moment in history where people did not feel the affection toward Germany that she herself had felt, correct? And this is what's interesting about it is that because this is a German town that 
conflict, that, that tension actually was greater. It's very interesting that um, really, you know, starting in the First World War in the 1914s, there was a thing called uh, German, anti-German hysteria. And if you've ever been to um, Finley Market, you might be able to see this sign actually is there that describes it, is that it, 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 during the 19-teens, anti-German hysteria so impacted this city that they actually went around and changed the names of streets. And right here in this neighborhood, and I don't know if you know, if you go out to church, turn right then left, Woodburn Avenue, that was a German enclave. And you'll see sometimes streets there that have names, and underneath it you'll see a, a like, I think it's a brown street sign, and that was to be what the street was called before they anti-Germanized it, right? Because it was this idea that, no, they are so bad, it, it's beyond reproach. And interestingly enough, I found this picture online, which is of this um, warthog. And this was an illustration from the Cincinnati Post in the 19-teens, and you can't read, but it's Prussianism because the Prussians were the Germans, and it just showed this warthog ripping up civilization. So the anti-German feeling and movement existed then. And I don't know if it's you, because I'm a child of, you know, the late 70s, 80s, but quite honestly, like, if there was anybody you could really just go against it was the nazis right like it's like we had this agreement that the nazis were not good in any sense i mean we all saw raiders of the lost ark which was basically an ode to anti-nazism and then you know coming through to the blues brothers because i hate illinois nazis anyone is that a data reference that's fine okay why i begin this conversation talking so much about germany and this feeling is that i would say that there is then this feeling of animosity, this justified disdain for people who were bad, for enemies. It's why we can just lock, lock them all into this place. And as we begin the study that Kelly introduced, is that uh, we're going into a study of the book of Exodus. And the enemies in the book of Exodus are very quite clear. It's the Egyptians. And the Egyptians were enemies of god's people but it's not like the egyptians were the only enemies of god's people and actually in fact throughout the bible there are people groups that god basically identifies he says look these are people that are an affront to who we are and who we believe and therefore they need to be dealt with they will experience my judgment my wrath because of who they are and how they live. Most prominently, if you've ever read the book of Revelation, and just, you know, a life pro tip for all of us, it's Revelation, not Revelations. If you drop the S, you're going to look like a Bible scholar just like that. But in the book of Revelation, 11 times, there is mention of the empire and the evil of Babylon. And Babylon, it's interesting because Babylon, even in Revelation, is actually supposed to be illustrative of the Roman Empire, who was another evil empire, Right? that had existed hundreds of years before, but because they were so bad, God wanted to say, just remember Babylon. And this is actually a picture of the multi-headed dragon of Babylon, which is supposed to be the enemy of God's people. So throughout all of Scripture, we consistently see that there are nations, groups, that God identifies and say they are the enemy, and we need to deal with them. Hence now our look in the book, in the book of Exodus and our study of Egypt and I haven't preached in a while, so my iPad goes to sleep. So I'm just, I knew that would happen, but I swear I can stay on top of this to find out where I'm at in this. So as we're looking at Exodus, we need to see the intersection of the previous study that Kelly led us to. 
in the studies of the life of Jesus, and how even this idea of Egypt as enemy has impact um, in, in Jesus' world. And to do that, we want to take a look at Matthew chapter 3. Kelly led us through a study of the book of Luke. And Matthew takes a different bent on it, but, um, and I said Matthew chapter 3. It's Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. And we read this about Mary and Joseph. When they had gone, oh, this is the angel, or the wise men. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt. And that's where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said to the prophet, out of Egypt, I called my son. So you get this Egypt motif even in the life of Jesus. Now, Luke takes a different tact when he's trying to tell about the story of life of Jesus. What Matthew wanted to do is show the Jewish leaders, the people at that time, that this Jesus, who was born in miraculous means, is actually the Messiah of God's people, Israel. And the way that Matthew does that is he kind of emulates all of the Old Testament scriptures to get there. So in Matthew chapter 1, there's a genealogy, a huge list of, list of names. If you're doing your, hey, it's a new year, I'm going to read through the Bible and go through Genesis, maybe you're not there yet, but there's always that point when you're like, hey, story, story, story. And then it's like three chapters of names and genealogies. Genealogies were very important to God's people because it showed how their lineage stretched down, that their families were robust and that God had provided for them. So Matthew starts off with genealogy. He introduces all these things, and the one thing that Matthew does here, when King Herod was killing all those babies in Bethlehem, to save the Holy Family at that point, he said, you need to go to Egypt. And any good Jewish reader would have stopped and paused. Because Egypt was not the place you went to. Egypt was the place you wanted to leave. Because Egypt was the personification of evil and enemy of God. And yet what we see right here is that whereas Joseph took his family into Egypt, they were able to release. And because similarly to the way that God had released God's people from Egypt from bondage, so too Jesus came out of that. So in a way, it was the journey of Jesus coming out similarly to that of God's people. It's important for us then, if we are going to be good Christians, if we are going to understand what God is going to do, to understand the power of the Exodus journey and to understand the player. So what I'm, you know, this is not really an introduction. I'm keeping flowing with this, but I want you to see how important Egypt is to the people of God because it personifies evil. It personifies sin. And even for some of us moderns, that's something to deal with. Because sometimes you'll get, if, you know, if you're calling out somebody for doing sinful things or for being evil, we're like, hey, those constructs don't exist. And really, that's why I did the whole German introduction, maybe except for the Nazis, right? Like, we're at least still in a day and age where, like, trying to identify with Nazism is a bad thing. But similarly, what I want to see is throughout Scripture... There's this idea that this is sin and this is evil and God's provision protects his own people from evil. So I want to go a little bit into the Egyptian empire. Do I have a map? I don't know if some of you guys used to do it all the time. I'm really struggling this. You sure I can't use a handheld microphone? You did not let me do that. My wife said, you have to use this. Can I please use a handheld microphone? Microphone? Yeah, see the person outside is 
agreeing to it. And by the way, this is a perfectly good piece of material. And Kelly's like, look, you always have problems. Keep it up high. Okay, you want to coach me through this? Great, you're beautiful. Does this work? Yes. I was going to say you're beautiful, but I'm like, no, I am the hot pastor's spouse, so it works out well. Anyone? No joke. Okay. Give me a second. Thanks, Garrett. I needed that. I need that affirmation. By the way, this is a perfectly good piece of, online people are like, what? This is a perfectly good piece of thing, but when you don't wear it for a while, you have to form it and make it and mold it your own, and I have no molding abilities. There. Now I feel like a good Pentecostal preacher. I'm ready to roll. Okay. But I don't know how many Pentecostal preachers work through maps, but let's work through maps. This is Egypt. Um, I actually cropped this a little bit. You, you can't see it at the bottom of uh, the map is Thebes, which is one of the big cities. Cairo is more towards the top. You see Memphis up here. But here's the thing is that if you can even see from afar, you see there's a lot of like tan on that map. And that's because Egypt sits on the eastern edge of the Sahara Desert. I don't know if you've ever been to the desert. And by the way, that's uh, one S, not two S's, because I was actually writing a text the other day about food deserts, which is where there's not enough grocery stores. And somebody, I was like, food deserts and they're like, that sounds doubly tasty. So in the desert, it's a bad place to be. But what's interesting about Egypt is the lifeblood of that nation was the Nile River, right? We have a familiarity of that. And the reason I bring the map up, which is important, is you see that everything is desert except the greenery that surrounds the Nile River. And even though that is a modern map representation of this, part of the growth and the strength of the ancient Egyptian empire was their ability to understand the Nile and their ability to use it for agricultural purposes to be able to give them vibrancy. So what's interesting is that even in the midst of most famines, Egypt always had the source of the Nile because of, of its power, a great and might going through it, and their ability to be able to use that allowed them to be able to consolidate regional power because they were surrounded by nomadic desert peoples and because they had the Nile, they had agriculture. Because they had that, they were able to accumulate power. So the growth of the ancient Egyptian empire is about 3,000 years before Jesus was born to its peak right about 1,500 years before Jesus was born. The reason that I bring that up is because in 1446 BC, and we know this as a date, is when God's people exited Egypt. So we don't know exactly where it was within the pantheon of that little time period. However, because of that um, time period, we know it coincided with the absolute strength of the Egyptian empire. So when Egypt was at its mightiest, God's people were to be around there under uh, Thutmose, I think it was Thutmose III, Amenhotep III, or Ramses II. One of those were the pharaohs that Moses interacts with, with the freeing of God's people. But I'll tell you this, and I have to do this because I like to throw this aspect about history because we need to understand the moving of God's people is real. But of all the historical, archaeological proof we have in the scripture, it gets flimsiest around the exodus. And because of that, it leaves it open for skeptics to say, hey, there might have been pharaohs, and we know that there were slaves in the area that actually helped do things like build the pyramids, but we can't trace that God's people were there. I introduce that to say this is where the faith intersects with where we need to understand this story, is that even though that history isn't there, the validity of everything that happens to the scriptures, we're told to believe that these were actual events that took place. They aren't just metaphors for a better life. It is God's miraculous deliverance of his people from 
Egypt. But Egypt doesn't start in the book of Exodus. It goes before that. And actually, as we read through the Bible about the experience of God's people, we see Egypt, even at the very beginning, is the enemy of God's people. So very interesting in Genesis chapter 21... And this goes to the family of Abraham, Abraham, and Abraham is the patriarch of God's people. Abraham, who was told, hey, you're going to have a great nation, but because his wife could not have children herself, says, hey, you know what, here's a pretty young thing, you should procreate with her. And, you know, Abraham's like, well, if I got to do what I got to do, I guess, I don't even understand that. Baby is born, but then later when Sarah is able to give birth to a baby, there's animosity between the, tw- the two the maidservant Hagar and Abraham's son Ishmael are sent out. But it's interesting when they go out, we read that his mother Hagar got a wife for Ishmael, where? Out of Egypt. And what that's supposed to do for the Jewish leaders to say, when they see Egypt, they say, I get it, that's bad. Right? So it's like, this is the angry offspring of Abraham. These are the potential enemies. Not only was Hagar not the child of promise, but he also has an Egyptian wife and therefore not good okay then we look further out through scripture and we'll we'll, we'll, you'll be able to see the the adversarial relationship uh within exodus but going beyond that in the book of ezekiel chapter 29 verses 3 and 4 we read god's judgment against egypt the lord says i'm against you pharaoh king of egypt you great monster lying among your streams your streams isn't it funny the nile is the greatest like river body of water in that world and god's judgment is is like i see your little creek in the backyard he says the nile belongs to me i made it for myself i will put hooks in your jaws and make you fish and make your streams like stick to the scales. So what he says is that you, you go fishing in that stream, I'm going to make you like those fish because I am God and I'm more powerful than you. The Lord trying to say, you are enemies, you think you are great in the global scale, you are not as good as I am. And then in Isaiah 19, and we're going to return here in, in just a little bit, but Isaiah 19 verses 1 through 4, the idols of Egypt tremble before the Lord and the hearts of the Egyptian melt with fear. I will bring their plans to nothing. They will consult the idols and the spirits of the dead, the mediums and the spiritists. I will hand the Egyptians over to the power of a cruel master and a fierce king who will rule them, declares the Lord God Almighty. Are you seeing this in the Bible? What we're trying to illustrate is that Egypt, baddies, right? Egypt, not the good people. Egypt, enemy of God's people. Can I tell you something I've always found interesting too? And the rabbis noted this, and we don't know if it's a direct correlation, but maybe you remember from your high school, you know, ancient history class, that the chief deity of Egypt was Ra. Remember Ra, like bird head, always has a circle over his head, this dude right up here. The word for evil in ancient Hebrew is Ra. It's the same word. So even though it's like Egypt's chief deity, Ra, is the Hebrew word for evil. Okay, so you're, you're tracking with me, right? The, there's the correlation to be here. As we enter into Exodus, there's never the point to be like, Egypt, good. No, it's always Egypt is the enemy, and we need to beware of what they do. Now, this is the reason I wanted to have this conversation to introduce this because I think it's important to us because the story that we will look at in the book of Exodus 
is an important narrative and it defines a lot about the God's, God's people. And quite honestly, it defines a lot of even American Christianity today. The African-American religious Christian experience, experience is rooted within the story of the Exodus because the slavery of the, the 18th and 19th centuries that once exists, the faith that was developed by African-American slaves was one that said, we are modern-day Israel enslaved, and we are getting toward our freedom. And that's why when you hear those great spiritual songs that were able to push them through, there's this identification of slavery, bondage, freedom, right? So this would make sense to us. It's like there's a resonance here. We understand Exodus. We get injustice, and we want to illustrate that. But there's a, there's a dichotomy within what it means to understand the working of God in the world, right? Two different concepts that we deal with very much biblically. The concept of justice and the concept of grace. So we understand what justice is, right? Justice is when wrong things happen and they are rectified. And our understanding, I would hope that as we follow Jesus, part of our understanding is that the reason that we follow God is we know that all injustices someday will cease because that is the movement of God, right? What God does is he takes what is sinful, evil, and wrong and makes it better. But conversely, as much as justice exists, there's this idea of grace, and grace is an admission of even though sin and evil and bad exist, we too, who are the goodies, not the baddies, we too fall short. We too aren't who we need to be. And because of that, it is the grace of God that blesses those who don't necessarily deserve it but need to be there. Now, maybe I want to pause within here because God's grace is also shown on those who are being oppressed, right? So justice happens to those who are bad. Grace is shown upon those who are moving forward. Grace is the benefits that we have because God cares and loves for us who are the oppressed. Okay, so these two concepts are important. So when we head into a study of Exodus, what I would say is most of us will be like, I get it. I identify with the Israelites. I understand that the baddies the Egyptians are who to be hated and loathed. And we'll see the posture of Pharaoh as the personification of that evil who is always in conflict with Moses, who is always in conflict with what God is doing. Here's the rub. This is what's interesting about this is I'm going to hit the pause button and talk about one more really, really bad empire, the Assyrian Empire. And the Assyrian Empire reaches its climax of power in about the 7th, 8th centuries before Jesus was born, or 8th century. Seventh, because you're going in reverse. So hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the Assyrians come to power. The Assyrians come to power after Egypt, and the Assyrians, are, they're very interesting. It's not a long-lived empire, and they are actually conquered by the Babylonians. Remember our Babylonians from Revelation? So it's like empire to empire to empire. So there's different minor empires within the Old Testament after the Egyptians. There's the Canaanites, the Hittites. There's all these other nations. But the one who has the most resonance, the, the, the biggest empire that reigns after the Egyptians is the Assyrian Empire. This is what's very interesting is that not only would the Assyrians enslave, but the Assyrians were far more brutal. The Assyrians would murder at will. 
actually, we have ancient documents and texts outside of the Bible. So the Bible says the Assyrians, they are the worst, right? Like, I'm, I'm just, re- I would really say of all the people groups in the Bible, the Assyrians are really the worst. Not just because God says, oh, you know, like, I hate Illinois Assyrians, but also because they not just enslave, but they kill and they maim and they slaughter and they pillage at a level that nobody in world history really does. So it's very interesting, by the way, if you are trying to figure this out in the Old Testament, um, the book of Jonah, if you remember Jonah who's swallowed by the fish, the reason he's swallowed by the fish is God says, hey, go preach a message of grace to the Assyrians. And Jonah was like so angry about that. He's like, I will go the opposite way and get digested by a fish because that is better than preaching grace to a bunch of people who do not deserve it. Is that, is that helpful? Did I illustrate this, that the Assyrians, absolute worst, absolute worst. One more map, because maps are the best, right? So when you're looking at, then, where these kingdoms are, just to let you know, you have, you know, Assyria is in, you know, the area of Babylon. It was probably, you know, historically where that Garden of Eden area is. You have Egypt at the bottom. And then this is the interesting thing. Who's in the middle? That's the promised land. That's Canaan. That's Israel. This is very interesting, too, because if you're wondering why Israel plays such an important role within even world history, it's not because they were big. Actually, they were the smallest. They, they had, a, you know, under David and Solomon, they were a big kingdom, but it just never worked out well. But I don't know if you can tell, that's the Mediterranean Sea there, right, above Egypt. So Egypt is the gateway to Africa. When you look to the east of Israel, that's Asia. And then on the top left corner, that's parts of Greece, that's Europe. So the three continents, the three most important continents in this time, all converge through Israel. And that's why we have interactions of Alexander the Great. We have interactions with Rome. With Roman, everything happens right here in Israel. And it's very interesting why we have a recollection within scripture of all these major world events and they all coincide why because to get to anywhere you needed to get through israel in short all roads lead to israel helpful now do one dance with me and i'm actually you know if you have your digital bible do this but if you have a pew bible it's page like uh 496 i'm going to isaiah 19 again in verses 22 to 25 because i got to read this for you guys. It's very interesting. If I can find it. I'm getting close to needing reading glasses. There we go. The Lord will strike Egypt with a plague. And he will strike them. But he will heal them. They will turn to the Lord. And he will respond to their pleas and heal them. And just to make sure we're clear, Isaiah, this happens long after the Exodus. When he's talking about striking them with a plague, it's not the ten plagues that Moses will do with his staff and Nile and all this stuff we're going to read about, right? This is after it. So this is like, God's like, hey, uh, plague part two. I'm going to strike them with a plague. However, what does he say? I'm going to strike you with a plague and I'll heal them. After that. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria. The Assyrians will go to Egypt and the Egyptians to Assyria. The Egyptians and the Assyrians will worship together. In that day, Israel will be the third, along with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing on the earth. The Lord Almighty will bless them, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people. Assyria is my handiwork, and Israel is my inheritance. 
This is so important, y'all, and this is why I've got to bring it up. Because, and this is why I love the Old Testament. I'm a geek, but I will tell you the Old Testament, and I'm so excited for this study that Kelly's going to lead us through Exodus, because it is so good when you get into the Old Testament. You know, the Jesus stuff, it's the coolest, right? Jesus is the man. We love Jesus. But the problem is, is that we sometimes look at Jesus and we're like, okay, Jesus is New Testament cool. Old Testament God is just kind of pissy. And he always wakes up in a bad mood. And he's wanting to smite nations left and right, right? We have this view. It's like God's always angry in the Old Testament. But he, you know, he gets a nap in. And by the New Testament, he sends Jesus. And everything's beautiful and rosy. But the problem is, is it doesn't align with the fullness of scripture that we actually read. So when we read the Old Testament, it is true that there are enemies that set themselves up against God's people. And God says, look, enemies, you might have your day today, but justice will come. However, we think that only in the New Testament is when the grace of Jesus flows down. But it doesn't happen. The grace is actually present even in the Old Testament scriptures. And Isaiah, who is prophesying, and by the way, you'll read some Isaiah prophecies, and he's just like, here's God's can of whoop, and we're going to just open that up, and we'll just open the sixer and see how that plays out. But I'm telling you, in the Old Testament, there is breadth and space for God's redemption, even for the worst people who have ever lived. Even for the Assyrians, who you could do some Googles when you get home to see how horrible the Assyrians were as an empire. They were so brutal, and yet God said, you know what's going to happen? Back to map. Can I show the map? Because this is what I love. He's just like, there is going to be a road. And it's going to be a road that goes from Assyria to Egypt, and they're going to pass all back and forth. If you were God's people reading this, or hearing this for the first time, when God said, hey guys, great news. There's going to be a role in the Assyrians, and the Egyptians are just going to be traveling in the world. If you were in Israel at that time, you would have been like, heck to the no, right? Because that would be evil transgressing through, right through your front porch. You don't want to see that. And God said, hey, by the way, this road is going to be a road of worship. Not a worship of idolatry, but a worship of the Lord God Almighty. Because Israel becomes the conduit to be able to take the most evil nations on the face of the earth and be redeemed so that God can be praised even in the midst of evil. That's a beautiful image because what it shows is that the enemies can become sisters and brothers. That is beautiful Old Testament grace that is personified in Jesus and in John chapter 14, verse 6, where he says, what? I'm the road. I'm the road, I'm the way, the truth, the light. No one comes to the Father except through me, and that road goes right between evil through Jesus's forgiveness and redemption. I will tell you, friends, that that is in, you know, if you go home to your medicine cabinet and pull off the shelf and you're looking at the warnings, that is a hard pill to swallow because it doesn't play in with the way that we would like to see the world working, Right? So let's bring this home. This is the worst part. Where is it? Alicia, I am preaching at you now. She said, are you preaching for us today? She said, no, I am preaching at you. But I will preach at you in a way that I always do so looking in the mirror because this is important for all of us to do. In your life right now, you were dealing with some people and you have high disdain for them. And you're reading through the Bible and understanding your Christianity and trying to figure out how that coincides and where you're able to nestle and land into it is in the judgment text of the Old Testament. 
to be able to say, there's these horrible people and God will bring judgment on them. So when you pray and you try to deal with them, you say, oh, Lord God, please smite the evil of my enemy. There's a lot of Psalms of David that resonate with this. There's a lot of texts where we can use that. But the problem is when we do so, that's an incomplete view of our faith. That's actually not the whole teaching of scripture. Do you see that? The whole teaching of scripture is to understand is that those who are enemies will one day be part of the blessings to the entire world. Can I tell you how I have to, uh, or how I've learned to grapple with this? And this is interesting. And by the way, we, um, you know, there's no spoiler. It was like, I told Kelly, it was like, I think it was 12 years ago, 13 years ago that we taught through the book of Exodus. Such a great story. And I hope you're just, even though you're like, okay, this is old, it just has so much vibrancy. And it makes so much sense. But you know when I think about it, uh, Egypt, when I think of Egypt right now, I think of my friend Sam. And this is a picture of a uh, guy in the middle, Rob. He's a preacher. Ignore him. But the guy on the far right, that's my buddy Sam. And uh, we are, uh, he's from Columbus now. So, he, you know, he like, likes the Columbus crew, which is really his greatest flaw. And it's the sin for which I ask for his forgiveness. But uh, we got together for one of the USA games and watched together. Just a good time. And... Uh, I met Sam in seminary where he had come, but he had grown up in Cairo, Egypt. And uh, Sam never went back to serve as a missionary, but what he does is he works here, and he's actually what you would call the forwarding agent. We have done that at Echo to be able to help the ministry of his father. And the next slide is horrible because I, I will joke about this. His father is in the very top middle. His name is Safa. And I've met Safa numerous times. He's a good man. And he and his wife live in the middle of Cairo, Egypt, in a very dense place. Like, it is just amazing. And back in 19... It was close to 1980. Safa was there, and there was a professor from Cincinnati Bible Seminary that actually... Uh, he was very close to my family. My mom worked for him for a while. He went over to see some ancient scrolls that had been discovered. And he stayed in Safa's house... And in the midst of that, he was like, you know what you need to do? You need to come to America and come to seminary. Because Safa had grown up a Coptic Orthodox Christian. It's very much like uh, Catholicism, but actually, if you can believe it or not, even more, um, sometimes more legalistic there. Actually, Safa, when he went to seminary and came back, he started preaching at a church, and the Coptic Christians actually, and it, it works in the same thing as law. They were like, look, we're going to, you are guilty of the crimes of heresy. You're teaching that people need to be baptized and we need to correct you of this. And he's been convicted of heresy a couple times. I don't even know. We'll work on getting you convicted of heresy, Kelly. I don't even know where we go for that, but we'll find a place. But in the midst of that, it's also a Muslim country where there's a ton of hostility to the gospel. But what, through Sam, and he's always you know online, he's posting stories about their family. And by the way, the reason... I, I, this is one of the few pictures I can find because it, it is to the extent that there are so few, they try not to put a lot of pictures of, up about them and their religious ministry because they know that persecution can begat when that happens. However, in the middle of Cairo, near the Nile River, Safa is leading a group of Christians and church leaders in a journey toward understanding who Jesus is. And Therefore, the only Egyptians that I really know are my friends. 
So when I read, I actually texted Sam, and that's where I, you know, we, he had, it was funny because I was like, hey, give me, give, me, just give me some good material about this. And he's just like, I don't know if I have any good story or anything to share about you, but I just love what God is doing through my parents who are even in their, eldering, in their elder years. Like Jesus is being preached in the middle of Egypt today, and there are people just like us who on a Sunday morning have come together and praise him. And because of that, friends, you see the completeness of it. So you might have enemies in your life, and they might be enemies today, but through the grace of Jesus Christ, they don't have to be enemies in perpetuity. It's that that is the greatness of the Lord, is he can take all nations and all empires, and they all bow down before him, because he, friends, he changes everything. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. This is New Testament. Jesus tells us, love our enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So in this journey, as we look through Exodus, but more so as we journey through life and try to make sense of what the scriptures say to us, my prayer for us is that as we study Egypt and we see the evil, we recognize that through Jesus, the evil does not reign that the Lord God remains enthroned. I'm thankful that the road to worship is open for all. I'm thankful that we are here today where we can do this. And the ultimate expression of, this, of, uh, of that for us as followers of Jesus is this time of communion. It's where we come together in worship of the Savior who transformed everything, the Messiah of God's people, Israel, who makes enemies into friends. So we're going to continue in this time of worship. Dylan's going to come up here and uh, play some music in the background. If you're a follower of Jesus, we're going to have people stationed up here with the bread. You can take a piece of bread, take a cup, take it back to your seat. Let's use the next few moments to contemplate the moving of the Lord Jesus who makes enemies into friends. But first I'll pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the whole of Scripture all of the Bible, and there are parts that resonate with us, but like I say, sometimes you're preaching at us. Sometimes there's places where we, as your followers, need to feel conviction. Father, you know that we have adversaries and enemies in our lives, and some of them, you know, I don't want to minimize it, because some of us right now are in the midst of what we feel to be even spiritual warfare. But when we think about this, God, help us to really, really nestle in the fact that you are above all. That to you, the Nile River is just a pleasant little creek in the backyard. That you have all power, and yet, Father, what you choose to do through that is redeem. So as much as your justice can reign, Father, we just, uh, we, we just embrace your grace. And that grace that was stretched out on the cross in death to bring new life. So as we come here today... We ask for forgiveness, but we walk to the cross. Thank you for your son, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for the gift of your attention today. If you ever want to join Echo Church in person, we meet on Sundays at 1030 a.m. You'll find us at 1301 East McMillan Street. That's in the Walnut Hills neighborhood of Cincinnati, Ohio, just up the street from our city's beautiful Eden Park. Find out more about us on our website, echochurch.org. Have a great week.